Good morning, Cross Point. How are you? Results were mixed on that particular question. I hope you're doing well. Today we're going to conclude our series in Proverbs, not because we've covered the whole book, but because we've examined four of its wisdom speeches. And today I won't be sharing with you the best part of Scripture. All of Scripture matters. It's all inspired. It's all breathed out, literally, the Bible says, by God. It is His very voice, His Word. The best part is that that explicitly, clearly tells us about His Son, Jesus. All of Scripture points to Him. After His resurrection, shortly before He ascended to the Father, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus opened the mind of His disciples so that they would understand, and He walked them through their Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, and explained to them how everything they had heard in their homes, every Scripture they'd ever heard read in the synagogue, all pointed to Him. Jesus is the culmination. He's every promise of God kept. Years later, Paul would preached the gospel in a wicked city named Corinth, and he would write them two letters that we have in Scripture, one of which says that in Jesus, every promise that God has made finds its yes. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise that God ever made to mankind. Today, we're not going to explicitly talk much about Him because the passage of Scripture never mentions Him. But make no mistake, if you could have been an eyewitness to the life of Jesus and the few things we're told about His childhood and everything we see in His public ministry, He's our best example of what we're going to talk about today. And today we're going to talk about a topic that in my just personal experience and certainly experience as a pastor, I haven't found a single topic that once the issue of Jesus is settled, in other words, once people turn from their sin and trust Him as Savior, and everybody loves the Lord, and we're all on the same page about Him who matters most, there's not another topic that comes up that I find that more readily divides people, discourages kids, frustrates parents, ends friendships, that what we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to talk about work. I thought you'd be excited about that. <laughs> it's a needful thing. Here's how I know. How many of you worked this week? Whether you got paid or not, how many of you put in some work? Can we, now that we know we're not talking about getting a paycheck, can we do that survey again? How many of you put in some work in some capacity somewhere this week? Almost all of you. The rest of you, congratulations. Okay? <laughs> it's vitally important to understand what the Bible says about work. Proverbs does. As I'm going to show you, it comes again and again to the topic of work. Today it offers a biting lesson. You can hear the sarcasm in the voice, in the pen of the wise man who is inviting someone to learn how to work. What kind of lesson is this? Well, the lesson today from Proverbs chapter 6 is a humbling lesson. 
It's a humbling lesson because a lazy man is invited to step outside, to get out of bed where he's been sleeping far too long, putting off the things that he should be doing. The lazy man is invited to step out into the bright sunlight and go kneel down by an anthill because Proverbs says you can learn a lot from an ant. You see why that would be humbling? To be a human being invited to kneel down next to an anthill and watch the ants do their thing because they have a great deal to teach you? Look at Proverbs chapter 6 and you'll see what I mean. I'm in Proverbs 6, verse 6. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard. Started him off with a fastball, didn't he? What a magnificent word sluggard is. Sometimes the people who create words in our language get it just right, and sluggard is one of those words. It sounds lazy, doesn't it? A sluggard. In other words, a human being that reminds us of another creature in God's creation, which is a slug that moves ever so slowly, leaving a trail behind that nobody particularly enjoys. (laughs) And what the sluggard, what the lazy man, the lazy woman is told to do is this, go to the anto sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. An ant can teach you a great deal. It's not only a humbling lesson, uh, humbling lesson, it's a necessary lesson. There's not one person in the world who doesn't need to be taught what work is and how to work. There's a biblical misconception about work that I need to clear up before we go deeper into this proverb. The biblical misconception is this, that work is a necessary evil, that work is a curse. Have you ever heard that, ever thought that? I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Work is not a curse. How do I know? From the very first chapters of the Bible, when I open Scripture, I'm told of a God who is good and perfect, who works. In six days, He creates all that is. And on the seventh day, we're told He did what? He rested. Why do you think the Bible explicitly goes out of its way to tell us that God worked for six days and rested on the seventh? Do you think God was tired? Do you think God took a knee and said, man, I'm worn out. This creating light, creating matter, starting up time, exhausting. I better get some rest. No. We're told that God worked because we're made in His image, and of the many things that God is that we are expected to be and created to be, we are all created to work. We're created to follow His rhythm of working and resting. Where then did we get the concept that work is a curse? Work is cursed, but work isn't a curse. When sin enters into the world, God puts a curse on everything. Sin wrecks and stains and ruins everything, including work. So what is ruined? What is wrong with work? Well, the conditions of work are a mess. What you get out of work 
is a mess. The resistance you face while you work, the people you work with are difficult. In other words, all that work is, like everything else in creation has been stained by sin, but work itself is good because God is good and He is the first and best worker. What we get out of work, that's a different story. We can work for days and months and years. We can work for a lifetime and have disappointing results. Everything around us in creation resists us when we work. If you read carefully what God says to Adam, you'll understand that it's not work itself that is evil. God is a worker, and God worked. And when God worked, He stepped back, admired His handiwork, and said over and over again in Genesis, God saw that it was what? It was good. You know that work is good because when you finally get the kind of work, whether you're getting paid for it or not, but when you're applying yourself to some kind of work in which you're successful, where you're making a difference, where you're seeing change, maybe in an object or maybe in somebody else's life, it is the most thrilling, rewarding, beautiful thing in the world. And if you ever want to know how much people are made to work and how much we truly enjoy it when the effects of sin are limited when we work in God's way and enjoy at least some of the results, talk to somebody who can't work anymore, whose health has been ruined, who has been denied opportunity, who wants to work and can't. That's when you feel the difference between the joy of making a difference. All of these things that are in us, to do something worthwhile, to do something that counts, to step back and be able to say that I did that and it was good and it's going to help me and it's going to be a blessing and other people are going to enjoy what I did. All of that comes from God. But being taught about work and being taught to work, Proverbs 6 says, is not only a humbling thing, it's a necessary thing. One of the things that sin ruined is the motivation to work. Have you noticed that your children don't immediately surge forward in every responsibility that they've been given in life? Have you noticed that, or is it just my kids? Have you ever had this conversation? Please, mom, dad, in your wisdom, wake me up earlier tomorrow morning. I feel I'm slacking in my studies, (laughs) and I know there's more in me. I know I can give more than my grades currently show, if you'd do me the favor of waking me up 90 minutes earlier than you usually do, I'd like to spend some quiet time working on the things that are difficult for me. Ever had that conversation? Doesn't happen. The weight and the curse of sin ruins everything. We need God's wisdom to live life in this world that is dominated by work, in which we're saturated with work, whether we're getting paid for it or not. We all have things to do, and it's necessary to learn. That's why Proverbs 6, verse 6, addresses a lazy person and says, come out to the anthill. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. What sorts of things can we learn from an ant? Here come the lessons. It says, without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Now, in this little tour through Proverbs, I've been explaining to you how Proverbs are intended to work. 
The point of Proverbs is to paint these vivid word pictures that arrest your attention and force you to ask yourself, I wonder what that means. What does this mean? The wise man is saying to the lazy man as they kneel together by the anthill, check her out. See these little ants? See how there's no one with a tiny little megaphone saying, get back to work, the break's over? <laughs> Notice there's no time clock. Notice that nobody's with HR being threatened that if they do that one more time, it's the end of them. No, without, he says, Proverbs 6, verse 7, without a chief, an officer, or a ruler, she gets to work. She's diligent and timely. She's preparing her bread in summer, and she's harvesting later in the year. In other words, what can we learn from an ant? First of all, she takes the initiative without strict supervision. The signature of the lazy man is that he always has to be told what to do, and he always has to be told to work. When I was 16 years old, my dad was trying to teach me how to work. We were on our way to a construction site where he was building another church building. And he was lamenting that on this particular case, some of the men he was working with were the kind who had a little checklist, and as soon as that checklist would do, was done, would sit in the shade and wait for somebody to show up and tell them what to do next. And he said in his frustration something that stayed with me all those years, from 16 years old to today. He said, son, when you're working, remember, if your boss always has to tell you what to do next, you'll be worthless as an employee. He said, if you know your job, there is always something useful you could be doing. Look for work and get to it. Where did my dad learn that? Right here. An ant knows better than that. An ant knows that you don't have, that the best kind of work is not the kind that has to be continually reminded and cajoled and threatened and told. And the ant is working in its tiny, tiny little existence. The ant knows better than the lazy man because the ant works, Proverbs says, because it knows, small as it is, that hard times are coming, and that when winter comes, there will be no food available. And if the work isn't done now, she'll starve later. Now, this is the kind of sermon where somebody could easily think just about the kids and say to yourself, I wish my kid was here to hear this. Can I tell you that this wisdom of Proverbs applies to every single season in life? Because of the effect of sin, there's something in each one of us, as excellent and wise as we can be at working at some things where we are tempted to laziness. It's obvious that a child needs to learn how to work, how to get up on time, how to keep their things in order, how to plan ahead and follow a schedule so that everything academically doesn't come crashing down at the end of the semester. But may I tell you that those of us who are older as we go through life, we're also building in the face of a coming winter. All of us are going to need at one time or another to make some kind of major purchase. One of the truths about life is that cars break down and that you can choose between ignoring those blinking red lights that are affectionately called idiot lights. I don't know if you knew that. 
that are constantly telling you there's trouble in here that will be very costly later if you put this off. No matter how healthy we all feel now, we're all building against the certainty that someday we won't be able to continue working and we'll have to retire and we're not entirely sure who's going to be able to take care of us then. We all have tests sometimes academically, sometimes professionally, major crossroads that come in our careers with which the work that we've put in prior will make the difference whether we advance and prosper or whether we're not. So the ant teaches us that much. She takes the initiative and she plans ahead and she prospers. That's the wisdom of the ant. It is always working as small, as meaningless, as easily killed as it is. Think about what a humbling lesson this is because ants don't reflect on the big questions in life, okay? None of the ants are in the anthill after a long day looking up at the ceiling of the anthill saying, what's this all been about anyway? What is my life amounting to? What will become of my children? No, it just works. So this tiny little creature can teach human beings made in the image of God at least that much. And what is the wise man trying to correct by giving these lessons? The first thing he's trying to correct is something that lazy people, and I know whereof I speak, are really good at, which are lame excuses. Look at verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Here's the warning. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Let's test the wisdom of Proverbs. How many of you know a lazy person? How many of you have ever met someone who admits to being lazy? Okay. I've rarely, I was trying to remember if I've ever met anybody who says, you know what the problem is? I'm just lazy. I know what to do. I just can't bring myself to do it. I prefer to sleep. I prefer to put things off. I procrastinate and hope that someone comes in to rescue me later. That's what this verse is about. Verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? Now he gets sarcastic, and he quotes the lazy man. When will you arise from your sleep? Here's what the lazy person is saying. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. I'm not lazy, I'm just resting. And you need to hear the excuse in that. Is rest bad? No, it's good. We already covered that. God rested. Rest is not only necessary, it's good, it's wonderful to be able to sit back. This is just me. But if I can have a very large glass of unsweetened iced tea after a long day's work, to sit back and put bare feet up is the most beautiful thing imaginable. The lazy man day by day says over and over again, I'm not lazy, I know what needs to be done, I'm just resting. And he would be the first to admit it because he quoted this verse mocking himself. My college roommate, one of my dear friends, 
in college, he recovered. He's been wildly successful now out of college. Was one of the laziest people anyone had ever met. And he would quote this verse. He would say to himself as he laid in bed at 11 o'clock in the morning, having missed two classes, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. He never quoted the next verse. <laughs> he lived it, but he didn't quote it. And he, his character, his signature move was to lay in bed in our dorm room and say, I have so much to do. And then you know what he would do? Roll over, catch a couple good hours. I'd wake him sometimes, go, bro, don't you? Yeah, but a rested student is a better student, he would say. <laughs> Roll over and sleep just a little bit more. That's what the sluggard is doing. Proverbs comes back to those lame excuses time and again. Look in Proverbs 26. Here's a beauty of an excuse. Look forward in your Bible, Proverbs 26. And verse 13. Listen to how creative and ridiculous the excuses can get. The sluggard says, everybody have it? Okay, it's on the screen if you don't. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. I can't go to work. I'll be killed. Somehow a lion has made its way into our fair town, and he's just outside. If I leave the house, I'll be slaughtered in the streets by a lion. What is that? Pure, pure excuse. The wise man knows it. He says, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. What's the word picture there? That a lazy man laying in bed is about as useful as a door that slowly flaps in the breeze. It goes back and forth. There's some motion there, but it's not doing anybody any good. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Now, you know why you're laughing? Because you're getting it. This language is sarcastic and vivid because the wise man invites you to consider the life of the lazy man and see how absurd it is. Laziness always has a reason. Very seldom. And having known some people for years, their signature in life is laziness. They put things off. They wait for a better opportunity. They make sure that everything's just right. They have a hundred plausible-sounding reasons, but given months and years, what it all boils down to is the root of this spiritual problem, which is pride. Look at the next verse. It says, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. That's the problem. Self-disclosure time. There are areas in my life where I struggle with laziness. There are some responsibilities and work that I have to do that I run to. Other things that are important and needful I struggle with. I have to remind myself of this wisdom. I have to see myself in this story and ask myself, am I behaving like a fool or a wise man? 
And here's the problem. Every time I indulge laziness and make one of those great excuses, every time here is the root reason. I'm wiser in my own eyes than seven people who truly know better, who truly are wiser. Sin always has its reasons. Parents, if I could talk to you as a fellow struggler, because that's what parents are, we're just fellow strugglers, there are no experts. One of the most valuable things you can do for your children is see past their excuses and let them face the adversity under your care and under your roof before real adversity and real trouble comes their way. It would be better for your young students who are lazy in school to fail and suffer that indignity, suffer that embarrassment, than for you to continually rescue them and shield them from the natural consequences that Proverbs says laziness always brings so that they don't leave your home and work for someone who isn't as compassionate and loving as you are. Here's a little test case. Those of you who are teachers, how many of you teachers have been berated by parents when their students lays their way through school and you let them suffer the consequences with a bad grade? How many of you ever faced heat from parents that are upset with you about their lazy kid? Can I see those hands, teachers? You know who raised their hand? Every single teacher in the room. It's true. With teaching, sometimes the kids break your heart, sometimes the kids drive you crazy. It is far more common for the parents to drive you crazy. If you don't teach your child these humbling, necessary lessons of how life actually works, if you continually shield them from the real consequences of their pride, you will do them the greatest disservice because every parent is building against this certain fact. Life expectancy being normal, there will be a time when you will be too old and feeble or simply absent from this earth to continue to shield them from consequences. Better that they learn that lesson in third grade or twelfth grade than from an impersonal company who says, you know what, you've called in late too many times. I've seen this in every single facet of life. You never outgrow this wisdom. One of the worst things that you could do from this passage, if you're middle-aged or getting close to retirement, is to think that not, this doesn't apply to you because there are things in life that none of us enjoy doing, whether it's maintaining our health or doing our jobs or keeping our homes up or planning toward our eventual death. That's just life. And in every single area where I've ever been lazy. I've always had a reason, but here's what Proverbs taught me the most as I reflected on Proverbs 6 all week. Here it is. Laziness is actually a lack of love. That's what it boils down to. When I'm lazy, when I have a responsibility toward my family, toward a friend, when I have a responsibility toward this congregation, but I indulge laziness, and put that off and either roll over in bed or busy myself with something else to make work when I should be doing the hard work that I don't want to do, what is actually going on in every single one of those cases is I'm failing to love the people who would benefit from me facing it and getting down to work. That's the truth of the matter. That's why the sluggard 
is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. If you'll go back to Proverbs 6. Most of all, what this side of the anthill lesson is trying to spare the lazy man is the self-inflicted suffering that laziness always brings. Verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. In other words, you keep making those fine-sounding excuses. You keep saying that you need a little more rest. You need the conditions to be just right. You need a little more time. Here's what's going to happen if laziness has overtaken you. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. What's the word picture there? That you had a long time to get to work and do the right thing, but having put it off, laziness and the procrastination that always comes with it someday will overwhelm you with needs that you will not be able to escape. A robber comes and steals from you what is yours when you cannot resist him. An armed man surprises you and takes with violence what belongs to you, what you intended to count on, and takes it from you, and you cannot resist him any longer. That, Proverbs says, is what is the fate of every lazy person. One of my seminary professors understood this very well and spared himself a meeting. I now understand that was the point of the sign. I had put off an important responsibility with Dr. Stephan's class for a long time, and I went with fine-sounding reasons to ask for just a little more time. He had told us in the first hour of the first day exactly what was required and when it would be required, but I had found many good reasons, including prayer and Bible study, to not do what he told me I needed to do. He turned me around with the sign on the outside of his locked office door that I'm sure was there for that very reason. The sign said simply this, a failure to plan on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine. Some of you are nodding wisely. I went to knock on the door, read the sign, put my hand down along with my head and turned around and walked away straight to the library. That's the wisdom of Proverbs. Need is coming. There will be a time when you need something. You will need savings. You will need a car that has been well-maintained. You will need to have your work done because it's going to be inspected. All of us are working in a world that has been ruined by sin where all of God's creation is both glorious and fallen against the absolute certainty of need. Learning to work keeps you from the self-inflicted suffering because what Proverbs 6 is trying to tell us is this, the way you work today determines what happens to you tomorrow. So you have a great opportunity. Let me give you a few closing thoughts on how best to use this passage. First of all, hear it for yourself. Some of you parents have been scribbling notes furiously because you can't wait to get home, corner your kid, <laughs> wait till they get back from him and say, oh, you picked a great Sunday to miss on the bus. Let me tell you what the Bible says about the way you've been acting, okay? Listen for yourself first. Because no one this side of Jesus Christ is perfect. 
We're all prone to laziness in at least some areas. Look into this proverb. Maybe it's not your career. Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's something that you volunteer in where you're not, you've taken on this work, but you're not truly doing your best. You're procrastinating. There's some area in your life where you are, as I am, prone to laziness. Find it. And listen to the voice of wisdom. Kneel down at the anthill and in that one specific area, hear what God has to say and make the adjustments for yourself. Secondly, don't bludgeon the person that you see reflected in the laziness, don't bludgeon them with the Bible. Show them what you've learned. Invite them to consider the truth. Face them with reality. But be kind because the intent of all of God's teaching is to lead us into blessing, to make life as He intended it to be. It never will be perfect on this side of heaven, but we are made in the image of a God who creates and works and then rests, who creates new heavens and new earth and will give us new responsibilities in the resurrected life where we will enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. And thirdly, remember that in every season of life, you'll need this wisdom again and again. Listen for yourself. Don't beat the other person up with Scripture. And continually look forward as you walk with God. Look for how this wisdom applies in this new season, this new opportunity in life. And best and most of all, perhaps, Remember, tomorrow, when most of us have this day is Sunday, not all of us, but most of it ha- enjoy this as a day of rest. Tomorrow, when you get back to the work that God has given you to do, whether it's paid or not, when you face those responsibilities and that alarm clock gets you out of bed, remember what the God who works has given you to do is a beautiful opportunity to work like no one else to show His glory, His grace, His patience, His diligence, His creativity, however God has made you to work. We all reflect His image and His glory differently, but the things that are characteristic to you that you can do with excellence, people in a lazy world which is more and more divorced from responsibility and reality, you can be a shining beacon that tells people that you're different because you're related to Him. In this way, your work, which is so difficult sometimes and tempts you to laziness just because it's so difficult, will make your workplace a sacred place where you do ordinary tasks that a thousand other people do, but you do it differently because you render that service. You do that work as unto God who made you to work and then to rest. God loves us so much that He's addressed every part of our lives. This topic is all too often overlooked in churches. Your work matters so much that you don't need necessarily to be looking for something else. You just have to put yourself under God's hand and under God's guidance. And if you need to, stoop down by the anthill and learn from that little ant. Let's pray. Father, we have health and strength enough to worship you together. And that means that perhaps all of us, in your will, in your time, but probably all of us, will have an opportunity tomorrow to work again. When we rise, help us do so to glorify you.
to show who you are by the way we approach our work, to show some element of your character, your love, your kindness, your patience, your skill. There's as many jobs here, Lord, as there are people. Some of us are in white-collar professions, never have to clean under our fingernails. Others do hard, dusty, dirty work in every facet, the things we get paid for and the things we offer to do for others. We have a beautiful opportunity to remind them of who you are. Help us to do that. Help us live as redeemed people who were saved from all that would do us harm. And we're saved also to work and show your glory to a world that is growing harsh and irresponsible and lazy. I pray, God, that we would honor you tomorrow with everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen. How much does work matter? In Ephesians, Paul wrote that little baby church, and he said, the one among you who is a thief, let him steal no longer. Rather, let him work so that he may have something to share with those who are in need. In other words, work is not only to provide for yourself, it's also to bless others who have need. That's one of many good reasons that we give. As you consecrate your week to God and we pause to give right now, do so from a grateful heart. God bless you as you do. I need you to soften my heart, to break I need you to open my eyes to see that you're shaping my life.
best. We've been tempted from inside and outside to disregard your will in all kinds of areas, including the work that you've given us to do. Help us this week. Hear your voice. Be strong and courageous. Shake off laziness and procrastination. And do as you say. Learn the lesson from the anthill so that you may be pleased and people might be blessed by the good work we do in your name. I ask this in Jesus' precious name, our Savior. Amen.